0: Hi, this is Elliot Fishman and welcome to part 3 of incidentalomas, how we manage them. In the prior uh, two parts, we had some discussions about incidentalomas, frequency, some of the challenges involved, and then we spoke about last time uh, some specifics regarding the kidney, regarding the adrenal, and we also spoke about the pancreas. And I mentioned that one of the things that transitions from pancreas to spleen will be this latest incidentaloma, and we're going to start with that, which are the um, ectopic spleens. The ectopic spleen is really a challenge. Most of the time, it's really simple. It's typically a structure in the one to three centimeter range, often multiple, which is seen near the hilum of the spleen. They're near the pancreatic tail, but not touching or in the pancreatic tail. However, you can see splenic tissue buds failing to fuse during embryologic development and so that's what they are but up to 20 percent of cases usually it's no problem but in about 10 percent of the cases it can be a problem because they're near the tail of the pancreas or what appears to be in the tail of the pancreas there have been algorithms like this article by Bao looking at that and here were some of his thoughts Intrapancreatic accessory spleens appear as solid, heterogeneous, enhancing masses, 1 to 3 cm, most commonly within 3 cm of the tail of the pancreas. 90% of our patients had an enhancing mass with a maximum diameter under 3 cm. The attenuation of the accessory splenic tissue is similar to the spleen on arterial and venous phases, which was only commented on in two of our initial CT reports. The point they're trying to make, and the point that we've said for years, and we've published some articles on this as well, is the way you know something's an accessory spleen and not a neuroendocrine tumor, and that's the differential. Is this a neuroendocrine tumor or an accessory spleen? First of all, neuroendocrine tumors tend to enhance more, but okay, sometimes not that much. But what happens is on arterial and venous phase imaging, the accessory spleen looks identical to the normal spleen. It matches it precisely. Neuroendocrine tumors don't do that. So that becomes very, very important. Again, the key thing is you don't want to operate on somebody who does not have a neuroendocrine tumor and simply an accessory spleen. Now, we've spoken a decade ago about incidentalomas. Unexpected splenic lesions are commonly seen on CT and can pose a diagnostic challenge to the radiologist and the clinician. When we look at the differential, most splenic lesions are gonna be benign. Yes, lymphoma can involve the spleen, but it's a different appearance and you usually have other organ involvement. And yes, you're gonna have splenic abscesses, but the patients are febrile. And yes, you can have METs, but it's rare to get only splenic METs. Think melanoma. You have multiple other organs involved. Incidental lesions are most commonly cysts, hemangiomas, or hematomas, though infarcts can also be one of the findings. There are a range of other lesions in the spleen. The majority are going to be vascular. Some of them I think we can recognize easily, like hematomas, Extramedullary hematopoiesis is super rare. But then it's a huge spleen, and it has bony findings as well. And things, of course, like angiosarcomas or hypervascular, the patient's sick. Mets, the patient often has other findings. So again, there's a big differential in splenic lesions. But I think we can do well. Now, one of the more common things congenital cysts, water density, they can be large. At times, they have to be resected because they cause mass effect on the stomach. Usually, it's an incidental finding, and it's a leave-alone lesion. Splenic hemangiomas are the most frequently occurring benign tumor of the spleen. You often can see them as small with ring-like enhancement. Unlike hemangiomas of the liver, it's rare for the hemangioma to have peripheral puddling and central filling in. Most hemangiomas are small. They're often multiple, but they can be solitary and they can be larger. I like splenic hematomas because they tend to bulge the spleen out. I've seen them often called malignancies and I've been able to help people not get biopsies or surgery by saying, aha, this is a hamartoma." They occasionally occur with things like tuberous sclerosis or Wiscott-Alder syndrome, but that's exceedingly rare. Most hematomas are easy to recognize. Again, the reality checked. It's kind of like the adrenal. Most splenic lesions are benign. Most of them are followed conservatively. Biopsy is rare. It does not help to usually do an ultrasound or an MR. If you can't figure it out in CT, you're not gonna figure it out. And the problem is there are no new CT techniques. Dual energy hasn't helped. We're working on cinematic rendering. Perhaps that will help. But there's not been a whole lot of new things. But when I look at a splenic lesion, history is critical. Does the patient have lymphoma? Are there other organs involved? Are the lab tests abnormal? Are there other CT findings? Lesions can be solitary or multiple. Just because it's multiple doesn't mean it's not benign. Most cysts are multiple. Hemangiomas are commonly multiple. Hemartomas are usually solitary. And again, looking at other CT findings, if there's a liver filled with tumor or there's METs in the small bowel and mesentery, then the splenic lesion likely is going to be benign. Clinical history is everything. Prior infarcts, prior endocarditis, history becomes very, very important. Seward, their comment, they looked at incidental splenic masses on CT and whether they need to work them up. Their, their findings were, in an incidental splenic mass, the likelihood of malignancy is under 1%, so follow up of incidental splenic masses would probably not be indicated, okay? So again, if the patients are asymptomatic, splenic lesions in general are leave-alone lesions, though that's not always the case. In this article, the incidence of malignant splenic masses were 33% in the malignancy group, eight in the symptomatic group, and two in the incidental group. So the incidental group consisted of a new diagnosis of lymphoma, And from ovarian cancer but again once you have known primary tumors it's much easier to assume or think the the splenic lesion is going to be malignant is that incidental splenic lesion with no history of malignancy that is basically a leave alone lesion and sievert makes the point in patients with an incidental splenic mass identified in imaging and with the absence of a history of malignancy fever weight loss or pain in the left upper quadrant Such masses are highly likely to be benign, regardless of their appearance. Additional imaging or follow-up is not warranted, even even if the mass does not look like a pancreatic or splenic cyst, let's say a splenic cyst. Further workup is only needed if the splenic mass is seen in conjunction with other findings worrisome for malignancy. So let's look again a little bit closer. Accessory spleens, 16% of cases, 2CM or less match the normal spleen in enhancement, but can be a great simulator. Remember, not every uh, accessory spleen is near the spleen. If you have a ruptured spleen and splenosis, you have it every, it could be anywhere, but then it's not that difficult because you know the patient does not have a normal spleen. But sometimes you see uh, accessory spleens in the pelvis, on the omentum, in the right lower quadrant, Again, it can simulate things in the pancreatic tail. There's a number of different findings. But again, we follow the rule, accessory spleens enhance like normal splenic tissue on arterial and venous phase imaging. So here's a good example. There's a lesion in the tail of the pancreas. What is it? It's vascular. could be a neuroendocrine tumor. But on the arterial phase, it enhances just like the spleen, right? Another example, here's a lesion off the tail of the pancreas, but maybe it's coming from the tail of the pancreas. But you can see it's denser, but it's not as bright as a typical neuroendocrine tumor. And it looks just like the spleen, an accessory spleen. Here it is again as we go from arterial to venous phase imaging. You can see how the lesion changes with the spleen. And here it is again on coronal views. Now, when you talk about intrapancreatic accessory spleens, they're usually anterior. When things are posterior, it's usually going to be accessory spleens. Another case, here's a patient um, with a mass which looks like it's in the tail of the pancreas. Look at the difference in texture and density between the tail and the body and head of pancreas. Well, when you look at this, it looks identical to the spleen, both in terms of texture and density. Here it is again. Look how it enhances identical to the spleen. Now, you could be brave and say, I can't rule out a pancreatic mass, but if you recognize the splenic tissue, you become a superhero saying it's a leave alone lesion. And look how nicely you see it here, and you could see it as it washes out. So again, it's not an easy diagnosis sometimes, and if you don't think about it, it's very easy to go down the tubes, but it's something you need to speak about. Now I mentioned the big three of benign tumors. Splenic cyst, that's easy. You can get cystic mets from ovarian cancer, but then it's more implanted on the surface and it has nodularity and thickening. Cyst can calcify. The other thing that can calcify are old um, hematomas. Okay. But dense calcification like that, you know it's a leave-alone benign lesion, coronal plane as well cysts can be multiple you can see that here hemangiomas as we mentioned they do occur in some syndromes like trenaunay weber but again occasionally they behave like hepatic hemangiomas but that's rare most of them are going to be hypodense or hyperdense they may have punctate calcification here's kind of a nice ring-like hemangioma Now we mentioned before that you want to look also at other organs. And so if you see splenic lesions, this was an incidental finding. You also saw liver lesions. Perhaps this could be lymphoma and surely it could be, but the patient really wasn't sick. When I see lots of splenic lesions and lots of liver lesions and it's an incidental finding, I gotta be thinking about sarcoid, which this in fact was. Sarcoid usually involves the liver and spleen but in this case, you can see it may only involve the spleen. The spleen is involved in up to 59% of patients with sarcoid, ranging from splenomegaly to solitary or multiple nodules. Again, important. Now, we also talk about sickle cell disease. Small spleen, often atrophic, as we know, with calcifications. If you have some things like thalassemia, the spleen can be large. But here's an incidental finding, you know the history, there's no workup necessary, okay? Splenic abscess, they're rare, the patients are sick. You don't pick up incidental splenic abscesses. Invariably, diabetes, alcohol abuse, and IV drug abuse are common things. But here's a low-density lesion, it's not a cyst, it's not hemangioma, it's not hematoma. This looks like an abscess. Theoretically abscesses and primary lymphoma can look similar, but this looks bad. And in a patient who's febrile, this was a splenic abscess. Now, let's just talk a little bit about liver lesions. Liver lesions are commonly benign. Think liver cysts, think hemangiomas. The question is, how do you manage these incidental lesions? And there was an article by Gore way back when, when they spoke about looking at lesions thinking about the patient's risk factors based on oncology, looking at some of the enhancement characterizations, looking at CIS size, and this incidental committee came up with a very complicated chart about how to evaluate liver lesions, how closely to follow them. And it was kind of a little bit based on size, but very complicated. We did this again seven years later. It was a lot simpler. It was still based on size, but enhancement characterization and tended to be careful not to miss a malignancy, but recognize that most lesions indeed were benign. The core objectives of the Incidental Finding Committee develop a consensus on patient characterization and imaging features that are required to characterize an imaging a finding, provide guidance to manage such findings, and recommend reporting terms as well as focus future research by proposing a generalizable management framework across practice settings. And so they made some points. Low-risk patients, incidental liver lesions under a sonometer do not require further workup. Incidental 1 to 1.5, having benign characteristics, leave it alone. If it's over 1.5 or the 1 to 1.5 but it's suspicious, Do an MR for clarification. In high-risk patients with incidental liver lesions under a CM, depending on the situation, careful CT follow-up or MR would be necessary. But again, can you determine what the lesion is? Also in terms of management, if it's pancreatic cancer and the patient has vascular encasement, the presence of liver is not going to matter and perhaps you don't need a second study. But if the patient is resectable and the only thing is this eight millimeter indeterminate lesion, then MR can be very helpful. So it's simple lesions. CIS, classic hemangiomas with peripheral puddling, and in this case, over 5CM, a giant hemangioma, filling in over time. Or the classic pattern of FNH, homogeneous central scar becomes is the same density as the IVC, and washes out so that within three minutes or four minutes, it can be nearly isodense, even a 6 centimeter mass like this. We talk about other lesions incidental, hepatic adenomas. Often, hepatic adenoma versus FNH is a challenge. Hepatic adenomas are important because they're not benign. They're considered premalignant. They also can spontaneously bleed. Hepatic adenomas can look very similar to hepatomas like this case has a pseudocapsule. has what looks like neovascularity. Here's a hepatoma just to compare it to. Doesn't look that different, just a bit smaller. Again, with hepatomas, neovascularity. If you see a mass, you want to do a MIP imaging. You can really pick up the peripheral enhancement of hemangioma, but you also can pick up the neovascularity of hepatoma, but you also can pick up the central vessel of focal nodular hyperplasia. The last thing I'll comment on is adrenal cysts. And this is something also that's had a lot of redo recently. Again, how do you manage adrenal cysts? It's important because this article by Rosencrantz made the point that there were rules, but people were not following the rules. There's a lot of work also going on in the OB regarding the management of adrenal, of adnexal lesions, rather, incidentally seen on CT. Recommendations based on the collective experience of the members of the ACR have recently been presented. So sometimes it's easy. Here's a solid mass, septations, nodularity. We know that's an ovarian cancer. Here it is in the coronal view. That's coming out, not a challenge. But what about this 20ish year old with multiple ovarian cystic lesions? Do you need to follow it up? Is it just simply physiologic? Should you get a repeat ultrasound? Should you do something and when should you do it? Should you do it today or in two months? Now, of course, the flip is lesions that are fat. These are dermoids, easy to diagnose. Some things are easy, some things are hard. Now, the adnexal findings incidental on CT and MR was just recently updated and it made it a little bit simpler. It really looked at whether someone was pre- or postmenopausal, but had a much more logical approach where the assumption was most lesions were indeed benign. The new criteria, for example, simple cysts characterized with standard ultrasound quality do not require ultrasound follow-up in 5CM. In, in premenopausal women and 3CM and postmenopausal. They talk about size criteria. They talk, of course, about looking at age. Okay. And again, it's important to know the features. Thickening, nodularity, septations, enhancement are all important findings. And the new incidental finding a chart is much smaller And you can see the characterizations depending on the size is really what drives everything. But it's a more conservative approach. Here it is showing the rules for pre and postmenopausal patients. And again, being careful about being overly aggressive and pursuing these lesions. But knowing when to pursue and when not to pursue becomes critical. And you should read this article and understand it carefully and make sure everybody in your group is following it. When an incidental, simple-appearing cyst is adequately characterized by CT or MR but justifies sonographic follow-up because of its size, the sonographic evaluation is delayed by 6 to 12 months to provide evidence regarding the cyst growth rate. By, le- by, dil- by delaying The ultrasound for up to a year instead of immediate we then give the cyst the chance to resolve or involute allowing for diagnosis as a non-neoplastic cyst that requires no further follow-up or to grow and then favor a potential malignancy so again there are simple recommendations incidental findings how do they look simple cysts have low rate of malignancy You can follow them slowly recommendations regarding the optimal timing of follow-up. Again, you don't need to go from CT into the ultrasound suite. You can follow it up months later in an asymptomatic patient. So we've covered a number of things. We covered some of the principles. We've covered some specific entities. I'll probably do more talks on other things. I didn't do lung nodules. I didn't do thyroid nodules. I didn't do a number of things. We go back to the initial statement that when we looked, agreement was lacking amongst institutions and amongst individual departments. Once you have some guidelines, this article by Berlin made the point that if you had guidelines, you were less likely to recommend additional studies because you felt like you understood what was going on people who read the white paper are more likely to report an incidental finding that was highly benign as likely benign however if you didn't read the article you probably would just say can't rule out malignancy so concluding departmental and group guidelines are important when dealing with incidental findings it makes your life easy and it really reinforces your commitment to the patients and your referring clinicians Organized societies are and must continue to develop guidelines. The Fleischner for small lung nodules has really changed the game. We don't pursue every little nodule, and as CT got better, everybody has a nodule. And again, being realistic that no guideline will ever be perfect, but will be critical for radiologists and clinicians in providing patient management decisions. Again, know the guidelines and really understand how to read the studies and be very specific as to etiologies. So again, the incidentaloma problem is not gonna go away. The better the scanner, the more incidentalomas, but we are getting better at understanding how to manage them and how to treat them. And that becomes something we all do participate in. So with that, I thank you for attention. And have a great day. If you liked what you heard here today, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit our website ctss.com for lectures, quizzes, pearls, and more. Also, be sure to check out our apps that are available for free on the Apple Store. All links are in the description box below.